Joe Rogan does all his fucking podcasts. Hi, most of them hi. <laughs> Alright, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Muscle Nerd Podcast, presented by Lifters League, bringing real science to the strength community. Introducing your host, Gus Cook, head powerlifting coach of Lifters League, strength athlete, physicist, educator, and entrepreneur. Okay, welcome to the Muscle Nerd Podcast. This is Gus Cook, head powerlifting coach of Lifters League, and we have our co-host here, Leonie and Braden. Hey, y'all guys. Hey, everyone. And uh, today we're going to speak about uh, evaluating needs for powerlifters. Um, there's a lot to talk about here, so they'll be quite quite brief on it. Now we've covered. A couple of these topics so like the first the first one is goal setting um, so number one when you first bring someone in even 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 just before goal setting is establishing a level of rapport with the individual to start to understand what kind of person they're going to be um, and then we kind of get a preliminary idea of what they're uh, goal is going to be now the goal will develop over generally the first consultant over a few sessions once they kind of start to find themselves and with with what they're doing with training um but i'd always break the goal in into a few stages i don't remember if we discussed this in the last one but it'll be you know kind of similar how periodization works you know what should what's our goal and their goal within you know you know, your next, you know, one to three months, which we can implement into training program, into their training programs. Um, what you want to achieve over the year. So with over a year, I don't, we look at more um, outcomes that they, that needs to happen rather than, both specific goals, but more outcomes on their behalf and we try to quantify those outcomes. Um, and then probably possibly over the next couple of years, which then creates a direction, you know, a direction and decisions that we what we need to achieve both in competition and off season. Um, so, for example, if you know a long term goal of mine is you know I want a thousand total, I have to remember that the small decisions I make in my off season and and program to program and decisions I make in life. Uh, are going to eventually head towards that whether I'm doing it at 20%, 50% or 100%. You know, I can't think about, hmm, let's do a bodybuilding comp. I think I'm going to do fuck all for to reach, you know, to reach a thousand kilo total. Um, okay, so the next thing to try to evaluate is skill level and experience. Um, a couple of ways you do this is first of all, yeah, you've just talked into them. You can see if they they are a coach. We can start to see what kind of uh, experiences they've had in competition. Um, you know, experience in competition will also give you a gauge of what you know kind of programming needs to happen or what needs to change. You know, what have they done well and what aren't they doing well? So the good thing with people with huge experiences is that you can start to get a kind of start to see pockets of weaknesses throughout the entire training because people are going to tend to do what they you know like doing or they've been set on a way that's always worked for them, which is then, you know, 
takes the focus away from things that may be important. Actually, a common thing with advanced lifters is they, they keep, they don't want to regress as much either. So people with lots of experience, they find that when I first get them in, I end up stripping them down. So if their deadlift is 300, they'll struggle with 100, 120 in their first session back. And generally picks up quite quickly, but it's kind of, no one's going to, most of the time, want to, you know, self-evaluate themselves in a way that's thinking that they are uh, not good enough. So, you know, sometimes, a lot of, a lot of time, and all the time, they always accept it and understand that this is what they need to do. But it's one of the things that, one of those things that you, as a coach, have to point out, point out their weaknesses, um, even though they have a lot of, <clears throat> may have a lot of experience. Um, also, actually, a good thing. I can't remember who told me this. Um, assume you can't assume that they don't know. You can't assume that they don't that they that they don't know anything. Um, you don't know sometimes who you're talking to, and they can know a lot about things, and so uh, and a lot more things than you that you do. So this is why it pays to for the most of the consult, which what I try and do. Um, is ask all the questions you need to do for the first, you know, 30, 45 minutes, minimal feedback, and just take it in, which can, even though you may start to think of a solution, and before presenting that information, it's one of those things I still keep asking questions, because there's always more to the picture than, than um, what you've picked immediately in front of you. So a few systems we have is like, we kind of have like a bit of a, just some basic systems, which helps with programming to determine experience is, um, we have this like grading chart. Now, I don't know if <clears throat> people have uh, seen our one, but there's heaps, not heaps, but there's quite a few around uh, the internet developed by quite a few coaches. Um, <clears throat> so there's the uh, Russian, the Russians have a good scale. And they base all their programming off it. So basically their, their programming, their grading system or their classification system is basically they name the program straight after what those classes are and similar to what uh, to what we do. And, you know, it doesn't tell you everything, but it makes a level of assumptions where, you know, between a certain range. So when I created mine, I used a 3D model of experience, time it takes to gain the total and then actual physical total, or then you got, and then also the physical total and then weight class and gender. And, you know, someone with a uh, certain total can assume, let's say, uh, a beginner who may anywhere between, you know, two or 300 kilo total. So a beginner female has a 300 or 250 kilo total. You know their potential or their strength deficit or the ability they have to grow in strength is a lot. So basic strength and conditioning protocols or strength and conditioning or powerlifting style training is going to be very simple. So simplicity, non-specific, um, high variability training is going to make them strong, making them an all-round lifter. But if you have someone, if a um, you know, female comes in with a 450 total or a guy coming in with a 850 total you have to go through with a bit more of a fine-tooth comb and de develop specific start to develop specific plans which have to be prioritized because a lot of these a lot of the things that they 
that you come up with or that are limiting their strength may take you know, 12, 18, 24 months to address. Um, I know I've been working with things with um, a few of my lifters for the last, actually, Pip's an example, working on widening her squat. It's been 18 months now. And it's come out like a few centimeters, but her stronger is still closer, but it slowly has the ability to get wider and wider. Um, but for them, for someone experienced, it takes a while to change, you know, change a movement pattern. Um, and so this is where also, you know, the grading is also a good way to determine, which is officially coined or as uh, nervous system effectiveness. So um, it's still basically, basically um, the, there are a few other tests that will determine a bit more. They also take into account height and body type. Um, I'd more use, I kind of more use that visually. So, you know, uh, endomorphs or mesomorphs or ectomorphs are all going to respond differently. Height um, will have the ability to produce more strength over time given that they are going to be able to build muscle so they're not very strong at that point in time they got huge potential so the grading kind of tells you if they're a junior lifter in our grading system that over the next two years you're probably going to gain you know move up at least you know 70 percent of our chart before you start to you know before you start to slow down and how to you know move into more specific training but nervous system effectiveness gives you an idea kind of what potential they have, um, what kind of training you should be doing. Um, so if you're very, if basically you don't have, if you're already very strong, mesomorph already kind of, you know, maxed out your potential, the training is very, very specific. You have to be very fine-tuned to not just like, not just trying to do powerlifting, but you know, even the very particular style and the way you squat, even myself, I can't vary too much from my squat position. If I'm slightly wider, I'm a lot weaker. I have to be like in a very, very, very specific position. So then my training becomes about trying to increase that range or my ability to have, um, let's say, error or more room uh, in a greater range of between stance and variations of my squats, etc. Then the assessment of risk injury injury, and the risk of injuries. Um, so some examples maybe, um, it's just basic questions here. So like medical background, um, a perfect, a perfect uh, way to assess whether future injuries are going to occur is assessing uh, previous injuries. Um, or pre, yeah, or any any um, you can start to determine like any uh, any sport specific uh, injuries that may have occurred, like certain niggles. So with uh, powerlifting, we look at um, shoulders, elbows, lower back, hips, knees. Oh, that's pretty pretty much all your joints. <laughs> but um, they all show different symptoms, and they generally occur, especially if they powerlift a lot in very specific ways um, um, they have very common patterns and we can address those issues quite easily like anterior shoulder pain can be something from can gen generally from poor movement and pressing 
where there may be affected something affected in the um, you know where we get over fatigue in the infraspinatus because we're not setting up properly by using our scapula or lats properly so then we end up getting a, getting um, our infraspinatus ends up taking a lot of work and gain, gain a lot of stress and so that develops a referring pain through the anterior delt and sometimes down the bicep so you know the the symptoms the symptoms are similar and if they we can you can generally pick why these certain injuries occur um, um, and if they're outside the norm outside the norm we can try to address it uh, how we normally would address it otherwise we would refer refer, refer out um, but gaining the history on that so if they had previous experience previous competitions where they had elbow pain shoulder pain you know that's probably going to occur again during their competition prep so something to address straight away um, then you can go into um, a few movement tests so um, your know, uh, assessment of risk of injury is looking at a hint uh, uh, seeing how they hinge that's a simple one um, getting to touch their toes is very uh, simple you can see where they where they initiate the hinge first whether it be the back lower back upper back or hips um, and see why this occurs what what um, is it to do with is it a habit is it a, um, uh, some sort of movement dysfunction or is it a ab ab weakness you know if you switch on if you actually switch on their abs and try to touch their toes then the general will start to actually hip hinge automatically um, breathing uh, if you see how they breathe uh, it also kind of uh, determine the, their risk for injury whilst having load on the bar or load on the back um, uh, what we try to see is uh, diaphragmatic breathing so that's utilizing um, your diaphragm to draw to draw air in and also your diaphragm is used to help increase intradominal pressure and so when you're lifting that that intradominal pressure stabilizes the spine now if we're used to shallow breathing we're not going to develop this um, this tension or the stability around the spine and so um, risk of lower back injuries are higher so then that's something that we have to address as well um, do you have any do you have anything that you generally assess or see no. um, all right diet diet history so um, probably have a few, might have a few points on this but um, some of the clients you work with but uh, um, some of the things we listen to would we never ask one of the things we look for is signs of eating eating disorders or body image disorders which is very common in all strength sports um, or any sport and the key is not to really ask them directly but because they're probably not going to tell you or they might not even know but asking questions that are going to um, where you'll see patterns or behavior patterns or or see what kind of decisions they make that may show that they have you know uh, some sort of maybe eating disorder or body image disorder um, but 
to get an evaluation of their diet also determines their um, so if they do have actually so they do have an eating disorder it's something that we have to try and um, depend on its level whether we have to whether it's whether we have the ability to um, address it through through nutritional interventions which we might start off with um, trying them on a strategic eating plan and see what changes uh, come from that um, one key thing I found is uh, managing expectations especially if we're uh, going to you know, increase their food generally it comes with a lot of hes- hesitation and so there are strategic ways to do this whether it's a only a very mild increase or even giving them a, a, a timeline whether we be like um, trial this trial this out for a week um, and most of the time we know when we um, obviously try to make them uh, more healthy and performing better they if the results pretty if the results turn out generally we can predict what kind of results they're going to get and it turns out pretty well because they're always quite malnourished in the first place but this isn't always the case so we can it can get quite complicated depending on the severity of it um, but it's definitely something that has to be addressed and if it can't be addressed by us they need to seek outside help now the this is also where it gets complicated so you might have a bit of insight to this where you know how do you get someone to refer how do you end up referring to them because you can't tell someone um and i know there are strategies and sports conditioning sport um, strength and conditioning strategies to get someone referred for help like this yeah um I think you I think you'd mentioned it before there's different levels of severity and it depends on how hard or how resistant they are to the change that you try to implement you can mm. try different strategies like you mentioned a few there not every strategy works for some so you've got to exhaust a few but um, you start to pick up after a little bit whether it's something that you're going to be able to you know make changes with or whether they're highly resistant um, but that sort of comes out with a little bit of very similar to what you were talking about with um, the grading, understanding their skill and experience levels. A lot of it's covered in that initial consult where you're saying, asking lots of questions. What are you Can ex- you pick up where they've come from and, and how long something may be ingrained for and why they might essentially do something? And then you'll start to have an idea of what sort of chance you have of, of making those changes. And then I guess it's the same as what you're saying, and managing the expectation of all that as well. Um do you have strategies in counseling that can be extrapolated and utilized in a uh, plan like this um, there would well there is but um i guess it goes from case to case it's under like understanding first where they're at with everything and so you either start with just a, a, a baseline of something and then measure how resistant they are to that change um, and then plan from there so some people um, I don't know how to explain it maybe use an example of a client with no specific details um, so, so going through some you got we've been strategizing with some yeah at the yeah, moment yeah um so some strategies would be um, some people we are at the stage of actually 
following a nutrition plan. We're mm. just sort of uh, educating them on, on foods and, and what they do um, and what's sort of needed on a day-to-day basis just for general health. So only with one of your clients, we're talking about an education program, really. Yeah. Um, and you're saying it's stemmed, possibly stemmed from long-term behaviours right from childhood. Yeah. So decisions made at start of life. Yeah. Affects where you know, they are today. So then you've got um, beliefs to overcome and, and, uh, and um, which you know, obviously with, with a lot of people, if they have strong beliefs in something, something they've been doing for a long time, their whole life. They're it's resistant be, to change. Mm. Yeah. Um, then I guess on top of that is they're all building awareness. So coming along with that education is, is making people aware of their behaviours. Mm. So after a little bit, you start to gauge a pattern. Like you work with someone, you can hear it in the language. You see it in when they come in and you measure the results. You see a behavioural pattern start to take effect. Mm. And then I sort of, you know, make them aware of these things. Um, because sometimes, as what you said before, it's not that they don't want to talk to you about it. They actually, they actually don't see it themselves until it's sort of presented to them. Um, so that's part of education, making them aware. Um, we problem solve, so um, we you know pick right through and actually work out exactly what the issue is, and then we try to implement a strategy or a solution that the other party also has to be willing to you know participate in. Otherwise, it's sort of pointless. Um, and then we try to basically measure and see if that helped. I've had done there's like behavioural tasks, I guess, so you can give people homework, um, and they have to be you know measure something or or uh, do a behavior until and uh, you know do a behavior first before they can go ahead and resort back to their normal behaviors um try to do you know direction I don't know, misdirection like sort of give them like direct how, how you say it take their mind off what they're trying to do and, and make them perform another task first so that's like all that learning behavioral stuff um but there's all yeah, heaps of different stuff I think when it comes down to with the topic that they were talking about evaluating needs is determining a, a baseline, not just a baseline with experience, strength, um, baseline of medical health and injuries. It's also understanding um, um, the psychological baseline to see where they're at and get them to a point where we want them to be. So this is actually one of the topics on here that's coming up very soon as I'm going through my list here, um, psychological profiling. So I might come back to that, come back to that topic. Mm-hmm. But establishing a baseline and then heading towards something that is, um, um, heading towards something that is um, considered basically uh, more healthy, what's going to, you know, make a change, um, a performance change, especially if, we, like, especially if we're dealing with athletes. Um, uh, food is going to be a, um, a very central, very central part of their lives. Um, as it becomes one of the most important things to making making progress uh, with your training. So then, yeah, not only are we getting a history of you know, their relation, we were trying to gauge a relationship with their food, but then getting a history on what they've done with food to also determine um, kind of a baseline of their medical health, of their, no, their metabolic health. So um, someone who has experience with always ask them what kind of diets have you done in the past and that will give us you know if they've tried if they've tried whatever it is like Jenny Craig or fucking 
keto or something, whatever it is, not only do I ask them, but then ask them how successful was it? And then what happened after it? And what happened when you got to the next one? So I start to develop a timeline. I write out a rough timeline right from the start. Let's say I've gone back as far as 10 years with some people, what has happened? Um, and if they you know, are displaying signs of yo-yo or their diets might be fine, they may have, you know, they may have never just eaten a proper diet before and just have winged it their whole lives with no education, then you already know where you stand on this. Um, and then if they do have a process of yo-yo eating um, or various diets or restrictive eating or overeating, then these are things that um, need to be considered when it comes to um, determining and looking after their metabolic health. Um, someone with severe caloric deficit for extreme periods of time is not going to respond well to put them on a, you know, a powerlifting specific nutrition plan, um, which people very heavily underestimate how much you actually need to physically eat in performance sports. You have to eat a lot. Um, um, and for example, like most people are going to be able to do what it takes to eat straight away uh, what a powerlifter should be eating so always always consider that as a goal if you know generally most powerlifting diets that are going to be successful for performance are going to be high fat high carb diets um, not everyone can do that without uh, put on huge amounts of body fat or 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 even just being quite disturbed themselves without developing who already may have already have a eating disorder they're going to have a lot of trouble putting on huge amounts of body fat um, but body fat isn't a goal either so um, that's when we come into body composition testing um, but before we go to that next thing I have on topic here is what we call kind of neuro profiling so I've you can to keep it simple we broke it into we have two types of go three three types of fiber types or muscle fiber types and those types of muscle fiber types where and each of them have subcategories but we'll just keep quite generic you can determine with someone whether if they are fast twitch slow twitch or a mixed and they respond very differently to different types of training someone who is fast twitch dominant um, you can they respond well to acceleration, high acceleration type training, explosive training. Um, they adapt well to, uh, better to low volumes of work, low volumes of work rather than high volumes of work. Um, generally require more, uh, more rest. Um, so more rest days. Um, they do pretty well on anywhere between three to four days of training. Where you look at a slow twitch dominant individual, they work better in, at uh, very high volumes, lower intensity, longer duration sets, and it has been shown that uh, uh, centric training works well for them. Though I have not dabbled in that in um, myself. Mixed is somewhere in between, and you start to get a gauge of this based off how you know they respond to the training. But there are specific testing, so you can do like a jump test. Actually, a simple jump test is you say, tell someone, jump as high as you can. 
Don't tell them how, don't tell them why, just say jump as high as you can. Um, when someone jumps, you can see how they build up their jumping um, capacity. So they do they do they squat all the way down and jump up as high as they can? Or do they squat down a little bit, squat down just a little bit, and, and then power out? So someone who does a short range squat, um, a generally more fast twitch dominant in the legs, someone who goes a full range or a deeper range, um, are more likely to be slow twitch, slow twitch dominant. Um, you can do, you can also base off ethnical background, people from colder climates, um, not or, not always, but a lot of people from colder climates are high fast twitch dominance, and there are a few pockets, a few other pockets, um, such as um, actually Jamaicans have shown to have a very, very specific type of fast twitch muscle fiber that is extremely explosive, um, Islanders. Uh, we have quite a few Tongans, we've had, we've had a few Tongans come through who are extremely explosive lifters, would never do well with reps, but uh, will do very well with um, explosive style training. Um, so, cool, so that's kind of neuro profiling. You got a bit of psychological profiling. Um, so, you kind of, to work out a baseline on where they're at, um, we want to know whether how intrinsic or eccentric, eccentric, um, that also equates to or similar to autonomous or controlled, where um, are they externally motivated? Are they do they require huge amounts of input from us or very little input now? At the start, our goal is to get them from a point where they are under huge amounts of control to um, becoming having a level of autonomy. Um, so we go from very direct coaching to possibly going to um, indirect coaching. What are you doing, Kel, for? No, you're different within the cell. Yeah, so you're not there, I think, as well. No, you meant extrinsic. We're having the definitions. <laughs> okay. Move on. Um, so, getting a baseline of where they're currently at, we want to get them from a level of direct coaching or controlled to a level of autonomy where they become more independent or more, or where a coach can even at some point, where I worked with a lot of other lifties. Uh, uh, as a consultant, um, indirect, uh, more of an indirect coaching and guidance. So guidance coaching. Um, so there are, there are different styles of coaching. That's not always how exactly how we do it now, just direct programming and nutrition. Um, advice goes a long way for people as well, and such as myself. Um, I'd get a lot of advice. I'd get a lot of advice from other experienced people, and that directs the way I would train. Um, Okay, then um, interesting um, part of uh, psychological profiling I heard from Christian Thibodeau. Um, how receptive, uh, what type of, how, res or what, re uh, can't even remember the name of him now. Um, 
neurotransmitters. Yeah. Uh, what? How? Re- how receptive are we to? Or what neurotransmitters are we receptive to? And we've got two types. You got people who are receptive to dopamine and serotonin. People who are receptive to serotonin are, are going to be on the spectrum of who need more control, who need uh, a more detail in the training because they are generally a bit more have a, are a bit more anxious or have have a level of anxiety within training or just yeah, in life and. Um, this this is also the thing that also that so we just going to say not risk taking, non risk taking. Yeah, let's put that way. And then you got people who are receptive to dopamine, where uh, are more highly uh, highly competitive individuals. Um, if you understand how dopamine dopamine works, so dopamine is something that anticipates a reward, and so person who is receptive to dopamine when it comes into competition their reward is or the anticipation of competing or winning at a competition is what's fueling their motivation and they do better by having those type of people do better by having competition um what it's what fuels them it's what fuels me if i don't have a competition i'm pretty damn lazy with my training um um so knowing how to, uh, knowing what kind of lifter they are psychologically, what's the term, what kind of programming you're going to do? Because this is, you can't change some, you can't really change this, but you can help it. Um, all athletes are going to come under the category of, not all of them, but most, I'll say, let's say most um, are going to be receptive to dopamine. They just—it's uh, just—it's in their nature to be highly competitive, where people within um, who are receptive to uh, serotonin um, uh, may have to take a different path, and we'll take a different pathway, but still can end up, still end up uh, at the top. Then, body composition testing. So, with body composition testing, helps us determine their—they're uh, also their kind of almost like their strength deficit about how much room for improvement in muscle growth we have um, if they have very little muscle mass it gives us a bit of an idea where they need to or where they should go or how much more muscle we could build and then also tracking this over time allows you to work out all right we've built a lot of strength but not much muscle so um, for us to continue forward you start to close you know to, for us to continue forward we may need to grow more muscle to potentiate more strength growth now, depending on what level they're at, you know, the way decisions you make will change. Um, for a new, newer lifter, basically you're doing everything at once. For advanced lifters, you'd be looking at one thing at a time, which maybe let's look focus on building muscle. Um, um, then also that gives you decisions and uh, feedback about how well their nutrition's going, and the feedback how their recovery is going. If they're losing any body mass, um, you should try and explain explain why because that is directly going to impact their performance um, then health looking at their general health now it does matter whether the person is overweight or not because if they do hold excessive amounts of um, body fat uh, that is something that we do shouldn't should 
uh, take care of you know because um, regardless of whether they are training or not or healthy ob- um, um, heavily overweight individuals are still going to um, have health problems such as you know heart health or sleep apnea hypertension or bone or joint health vis- high visceral fat and it still needs to be uh, addressed and looked after um, do you guys have any other points so far? No? Okay. Um, movement uh, movement weaknesses or mo- movement assessments. So there's a few things we look at, looking at um, even once they, an individual, once we got the, once I have someone out on the gym floor, just seeing how they walk and stand and get in position can give you kind of signs of what kind of lifter they're going to be and what kind of problems they're going to have. Um, and if you can pro- project any issues, you can test them and test to see if they are going to be a dysfunction in their lifting or not. You know, someone with kyphosis may have a very um, low inability to have good scapular retraction. So um, we can test that by you know, seeing how they how they bench press or seeing how strong their their lats are or how well the lats stay on. Um, once you can, um, if you see it, then to test that the, the dysfunction exists, what helps the dysfunction, such as an isolation exercise or a different cue, does that change the dysfunction or not? If it, if it fixes it, then you know you've got something to work with. Um, the hinging that we talked about before, so you can see how they hinge by doing kind of a toe touch breathing assessment to see um, whether they're shallow shallow breather or not um, then probably one of the best ones I use that I like the most is the body weight squat seeing how their body weight squat um, can look at everything there right from ankle mobility hip health hip range um, spine spine health um, back health and just overall seeing how well they move. Um, um, ankles, and you look at the uh, see how their ankles move, knees move, what they do with their feet. Um, so I'll always try to do this in bare feet as well, so you can see what they are doing with their feet, whether they're flat-footed or not. And if they are, you can see what kind of that does to the alignment of ankle and their knee. Um, then we move on to once you got to a movement assessment. Um, we we do we test their strength capabilities under various under various conditions. So when I say strength testing, it doesn't mean just going balls to wall one RM um, for any new lifter or basically any any basically any lifter. We're working to technical breakdown, and that's kind of becomes your gauge. And I follow a doing. A few ways so yes you can do one rm testing which is, should be best done after a cycle of training which after you know eight to twelve weeks of their initial of their initial training that'll be a time to test a one rm but at that point in time you can kind of work to a five rm or what i call an 80 percent rule so kind of work to a five rep technical breakdown for a newer lifter um for an advanced lifter, you kind of work on an 80, I like to work on an 80% rule, 
yeah. see how many reps they can hold, how well for, for technical breakdown, whether it be two or three. Generally, if you can do three to five reps at 80%, that is a very good gauge on like where their baseline strength is currently at based off their acceleration and how well they perform each rep or how far, how far they're or where their technique breaks down. So this is where I may record, does it break down at 60%, 70% or 80%? If it's breaking down 80%, then you'll know that you may have quite a few blocks of training, uh, one or two blocks of training where if you were to measure it, I would always spend their first block working up to 80%, starting at quite low percentages, working at very high volume of work, very low reps, um, trying to change what their 80% may look like and then we can reassess at the end of the first block, what the 80% looks like, and that allow us, from that point on, we can continue on to strengthen that movement pattern. With that, yeah, it's not always like that. You can, you, you can, it's not always with 80%, but 80% is a very good, uh, very good rule. Um, I won't go too much more into it, but each each squat, bench, and deadlift um, will show weaknesses. Yeah, you can. I would if you do. If they are experienced. You look at look at videos. Look at their history, and you can have a look at you know what their knees are doing and why sticking points in the lift. Um, um, how well their spine moves. How well their hip move. These will give you an indication of what needs to change or what kind of exercises you need to prescribe. Um, for maybe here one example of you know there is a. Um, a sticking point um, with you know, trying to hit depth. There are many ways we can address that issue, but it depends why the dysfunction exists. Whether it's um, whether it's been the ability to generate torque, open out the knee, open out opening out the knees to allow the hip to get deeper, or or there are ex direct exercises we could prescribe, such as you know paused work, um, um, bench press. Yeah, you can look out. How you know how they how they are off the chest at their lockout. Um, uh, see how their shoulder health or how their shoulder position maintains throughout the lift. So you can look at you know are they maintaining the external rotation, and um, if not, why and how you know we look at. So they, they all kind of um, not only do they you, you display what you need to work on. But also displays their fun their functionality there, um, where injuries may or may not occur, um, etc. So you know that kind of, that gives you an evaluation of uh, what things you see and what needs to change, and start to think of strategies if you can start to work out what actually caused the issue in the first place, such as why is the shoulder internally rotating in the bench press? Is it do with how they set up? Is it to do with their lats? Is it to do with the strength of their lats or how they use it? You know, because it's not always just because the lats are weak, sometimes just because they don't know how to use it. I always go in the order of trying to use a cue first before isolating the problem. If the cue changes it, then I don't need to change too much more, but then you need to be aware that the lats probably need some strengthening. Then what are exercises that can force um, force a, move, a change in movement pattern. One good for lats, I found, is like a spot press, because what tends to happen when people touch their chest, they tend to rest, 
when they rest the bar on their chest they relax their lats spotter press does not give you the ability to uh, rest so then that gives you a bit of a guidance on what kind of exercises you're going you could be, could be possible to do whether you got first off perhaps isolate the lats and work on cues or if they um, only have developed so far then maybe you start looking at accessory work that may help um, but you need to be able to spot where the issue is te uh, test test to see what the issue might be implement a strategy retest at the end of the training block or few training blocks um cool well, yeah, that's everything on my list is there anything that you guys see or want to add Does it all make sense or is it a bit all over the place? It all makes sense. So to go over I guess real quickly, when I get a lifter, a lifter in, yeah, we assess their, we evaluate their needs by first off assessing their goal, um, then their skill and experience, so we start chatting chat about their history, what kind of experience they have with training or competition, um, we have a few scales to help determine their skill level. Then we can look at injuries or their risk of injury by seeing, looking at their medical history, um, um, their sports specific history, what they've done, um, what they've done in, uh, in training, and have a look at some um, postural assessments, um, movement assessments, seeing how they breathe. Then um, diet history. Um, so diet history to see kind of where they're at with their relationship with food. Um, what kind of food strategies are going to help or if they have any any metabolic disorders you can generally pick that up in there I'm um, going through a diet history um, neurological profiling so looking at possibly fiber types which may determine what kind of training is going to be best um, respond for them and keep to keep that in mind keeping that in mind that most new lifters are going to be quite non-specific so the the one thing that a new lifter sometimes needs to do is just actually start moving. They don't need specific um, specific um, prescriptions, but it still should be something that we kind of know in the back of our head as a tool to use. Um, psychological profiling, understanding how, you know, are they anxious or competitive, autonomous or need control, or where does their motivation come from, um, etc. Body composition testing, um, we do body composition testing to work out their not just their level of health but how well they respond to training and what needs to change in their body composition to optimize training um, their movement assessments which also includes you know mainly includes for us you know, a body weight squat which tells a lot about an individual if you can't body weight squat then we generally would not put them under a bar we'll probably start with kettlebell work to try and address some of the reasons why they can't do a body weight squat. Um, um, and then their strength test. So seeing where their technique breaks down at certain strength levels, you know, such as like, you can do one arm testing, five arm testing, or use the 80% rule. Um, and then you can look at, see where their capability is at in reference to their, you know, their competition lifts, and then seeing what breaks down 
at 80% or at what percentage they break down and seeing where they're at. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you wish to contact me, please email me, gus, G-U-S, at musclenerd.com.au.